1: Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. You know, one thing that I've been thinking over the last hour is that I think culturally the summer of 2020, for very obvious reasons, never really found its footing, right? I mean, it, there really is no overarching statement culturally uh, about the summer. I don't think there's a book of this summer. There's certainly not a movie of this summer. How could there book? how could there be or even a few movies of this summer it's one of the reasons that today rather than talking about a new release we're taking the rather unusual step of of uh, of talking about a 1997 movie the postman which Although it rang hollow in 1997, maybe rings a clearer bell these days. Uh, Our guests today, well, before I even say who the guests are today, let me just finish up that thought. So it's also very true with music, I think. And, you know, every year, as some of you know, we devote one episode to our song of the summer show where we try to pin down what is going to be the one song to rule them all, one song to bind them. Uh, and there always is one, pretty much, or sometimes there's kind of two, you know. I'm thinking Blurred Lines and Get Lucky, I'm looking at you guys. Uh, but this this year there really isn't, and there's been a series of number one songs. Like every week, almost, there's a different number one song. There isn't any song that seems to have any kind of durable penetration into the sort of mass psyche, the zeitgeist. I don't think there's a song from this summer that's going to be a staple of weddings. But we're going to begin today... Uh, with the song that's at number one right now. But before uh, we do that, let me just tell you who's here. Cara McDonough is a freelance writer. You can read her blog at caramcdonough.com. We'll put a link to that in the show page at wnpr.org. And Brian Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent and a producer at WNHH Radio. He's joining joining us today by the miracle of Skype. Uh, and so, before <laughs> we get them going, um, let's hear the number one song in the country right now. I know I got to go. Back. I, I've already done Casey Kasem once this week. I have to do it again. The number one song in the country right now brings together the talents of Cardi B and Megan The Stallion. It's called WAP or yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, you're with some wet, so sad. Bring a bucket and a mop, put this wet, so Give me everything you got, put this wet, so Beat it up, baby, catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this cookie right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I wanna ride. I do a giggle. I'm kinda wild. Look at my mouth, look at my thigh. So
1: maybe you get the picture, or, or maybe you don't. Um, it is, I think, one of the few examples of hip-hop, or in this case, kind of strip-hop, uh, that mentions Kegel exercises. It might not be the only one, though. Uh, and uh, and it really is kind of a phenomenon in and of its own. Uh, right? It's not only number one in the country, but there are all kinds of competing theories about it. It is, quote, controversial, unquote, it is being denounced by people on the right as a sign that people have stopped believing in God and um, things like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, meanwhile, on the left, it is being denounced because there is a gratuitous uh Kylie Jenner cameo. Is there any other kind of Kylie Jenner cameo than a gratuitous (laughs) one uh, in it? Uh, And there are people who feel like this is perhaps the greatest social evil of our times. There's a change.org petition that has like 64,000 signatures saying that Kylie Jenner must be removed immediately or nothing else could happen. So, um, yeah, I don't know. So we should say that, Brian, uh, you're a working musician, uh, and this is going to come up a couple (laughs) of times here in this first segment. uh, but But we should have you go first on on I all the all I can say the only the only other thing I can say about the title of this song is that the first letter stands for wet and after that really I can't get too specific um, <laughs> so <laughs>
0: But, Thanks for clarifying that, actually. Right. I was worried. I was wondering where the line was. Right.
1: So, <laughs> yes, but you know,
2: too. people out there, use your
1: imaginations. Anyway, it's the number one song in the country. You should know what it is. Uh, although I will admit yeah. I was pretty untutored about WAP uh, until the, we started working on this show. So, Brian, yeah, go ahead. Get us started here somehow.
0: Okay. So, I mean, to me, when I was listening to this song, I— I mo- I mostly thought of it as fun. Um, <laughs> I think it comes in a long line of sexually explicit and often really hilarious songs. I, they, that, this actually goes back to the 20s. Anybody needs to run out and go to YouTube and listen to Lucille Bogan, who has a song called Shave Him Dry" that is at least as gross as this one is, and <laughs> is and is from the 20s. It's beautiful, but you know more recently there's yeah you know, there's Little Kim. Um, the song also borrows a little bit from the style. The video in particular borrows a lot from the style of Missy Elliott, um, who I'm one of those people who just wants her to keep producing music as often as possible, though, of course, she can do whatever the heck she wants. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, and another part of me is because I think of it as fun, I'm mostly bemused at the outrage over the whole thing. You know, it's I, I think to myself, like, have you never... Read a book or seen a movie, or you know, is it's it's a you know this it's a good example of the way that you know there's there's something oddly like stunted about the American sexual imagination, you know, where anything that comes across as like a little scandalous is suddenly an outrage, you know, where if if we're adults you'd think that we would see the humor in a lot of this, you know,
1: right, and that but I think also in that sense uh, and, and not for the first time uh, this kind of cultural artifact is useful to any number of people. And I mean, it's useful yes. to, to Ben Shapiro and other uh, conservative commentators because it, sure. it seems to so explicitly make the point that they want to make about the degradation uh, and debauchery <laughs> of, of American culture. And I, I don't. Yes. You know, And although, Kara, one thing I mean, it, it it's important to meet a piece of culture like this on its own terms. And, you know, I think as Brian was kind of suggesting, this is not, although this is a song about sex, and it's a very explicit song about very explicit conditions under which people might, in fact, enjoy uh, the fruits of sex. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really make you want to have sex. It's, re- it's, it's something else, right? It's this very energetic and perhaps, as Brian is suggesting, kind of funny uh, commentary on, on how, or maybe it isn't. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. You, you, you know what you're talking about.
2: Well, I don't know if I know what I'm talking about, but I I agree with with Brian that it, I think this is a really fun like romp into sexuality that when I heard it for the first time, which was recently, by the way, I guess I'm a little checked out, I laughed out loud. Like the lyrics are so clever and and funny and perfect. And then the, the music video is also just kind of a visual delight uh, playing on the lyrics. Um, But no, I I wouldn't say that this song makes me feel sexy per se. Um, It's kind of funny in the way that, you know, I don't know, some other overtly sexual things are funny, like sometimes male strippers, although I'll probably get in trouble for saying that, you know, that are funny, (laughs) if not sexy. Um, I did, I would, I will say this, I received before I even heard of this song, a lot of think pieces on it. Um, people were emailing me and talking about it, and I saw it on social media. and I was like, oh, this must be some sort of, you know, um, cultural movement. I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know it was a song. And then to to realize that it was kind of this this fun song, and I do think it's important to point out as many think pieces are, um, that it's it's women talking about women's bodies and women's sexualities in this very overt way. Um although I will say that I think if you have good girlfriends in your life and you're a woman, you've talked about these things. it's not it's not shocking. Um, but I was kind of surprised at the amount of press it got, to be honest with you. The, on the right, I was kind of, you know, laughing hilariously at the at the conservative <laughs> reaction to it. but um even I think that I reached my I, I I read some of these pieces on it, and I think when something like this happens, I sometimes think, like god, are we do we have too much space on the internet? like, I, I sometimes do think that we overanalyze things until they're not fun anymore. Um, yes. But I think I, I did reach my my point of being fed up with reading about it. Um, when I saw that there was a New York Times piece from um, an OBGYN who was pointing out that it was great to talk about women's sexual health like this. And I was like, okay, I'm done. It's such a fun song. And I like it. I like it. I like the song. Um that, and it's it's that stuck in my head. And so,
0: yeah, that definitely follows the rule that when the New York Times talks about something cultural, it means the moment is over.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> all right. Although a very quick moment. I mean, don't feel too bad for not knowing about it because it's been out for two weeks and it debuted on the charts <laughs> okay. at number one. So, I mean, it was okay,
2: good. <laughs> it was nothing. And then it was
1: something almost kind of instantly. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'll be sort of, you know, not exactly the grumpy old man. I just first of all, this I like hip hop. This particular kind of hip-hop is maybe, you know, a little less interesting to me. I mean, sonically, not thematically. Sonically, a little bit less interesting to me. I also wasn't that big a fan of Savage, which is uh, Megan Thee Stallion's earlier song of this summer. Um, And I feel like I've just been through this really interesting week musically, just in the way that, A, music was used at the Democratic National Convention, I think maybe more than I've ever seen before, because they could kind of produce it up and everything. So it was John Legend and Common last. Last night but Billy Eilish mm. kind of stopped the show a little bit uh, the night before uh, Leon Bridges uh, Billy Porter doing for what it's worth with Stephen Stills kind of twanging away on the guitar in the background and to me you know we're sort of I, I'm, I think it's my mood but the mood that I'm in is that I'm turning to music for inspiration and thoughtfulness and and perhaps also um, some r- relief and perspective um, and hope um, so, I don't know, there's sort of a nihilism to this particular song, you know, <laughs> which wasn't really necessarily, I, think, oh, I mean, I just don't really feel like I'm going to be coming back to it again and again. But it's I mean, not, I, it's
2: not hopeful.
1: No, well, I, I think for some people, it's probably very hopeful.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, actually true, true. Sort so of depends on what
1: you're hoping for. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, you know, Brian, I think Kara made a really good point, too, which is that, you know, in a way, you see all the people clamoring about this and you think, well, you know, of course, Naughty by Nature did OPP, you know, yes. Prin- Prince, right. Prince did Soft and Wet. Uh, and this is women talking about, you know, using some of the same terminology, talking about some of the same thing. Uh, yes. and, and maybe it is interesting that people find that a little bit more threatening. <laughs>
0: Yes, that's for sure. I mean, I think I think part of the way. I mean, one of the when the in the in the many breathless articles written about this thing, <laughs> I mean, one of the uh, motifs that came up was the idea that they were flipping the script. And at first, I didn't quite buy that idea. Um, I think mostly because I could sort of see the predecessors, you know, of female artists who have written plenty of songs like this. But um, I think that, that 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 is true. I mean, so often it's about like, I, I find this song fun in a way that I don't find it fun when a male MC raps in the same way. Mm. And, right. like, that, that is actually a pretty important point, you know, that there's, the part of what makes this fun is to see, I mean, or at least as I hear it, um, I hear a lot of empowerment in it. You know, I hear a lot of, like, the, the two women in the video and in the way that they rap are totally in control of the situation. And that's part of what makes it, you know, fun to listen to.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think all of this is true. And I feel kind of bad that I don't react to it more. And I really do attribute it to kind of the mood (laughs) that that I'm in right now, as opposed to any huge defect in the song. But it's kind of like, really, that's... But I do want to say is
0: this is what you're serving up during the greatest health crisis of well, the 21st yeah, century. Kind of, yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, I, mean, you know, I, I would take
1: Anderson Pax Anderson Pax down song lockdown kind of, you know, sort of says a lot uh, about this moment in a way that this one doesn't. No, to I me. Hear you. And, and to Kara, to your point, too. Yes, there is too much Internet. There is too much Internet. I mean, look, if. Sixty-five thousand or sixty-eight thousand or whatever it was, people signed a Change.org petition to digitally remove Kylie Jenner from the video of WAP and put Viola Davis in there. Or something. Yeah. First of all, somebody should ask Viola Davis whether she wants to be in it. But you know, That's I mean, I really, you people have too much time on your hands. This is not Agreed. important.
2: Agreed. There's too yeah. much.
1: So we'll shift from there. We're gonna do. We're gonna stay with music for a second, and we're going to um, really turn to Brian because he has um, not even in a remote or distanced way grappled with this question. But one of the latest songs, uh, pieces of a musical Americana, to come back under the spotlight is "The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down." Now I have to say I was, you know. Um, uh, I was around in 1971 when Joan Baez had this ubiquitous hit. I was surprised to find out today it never went higher than three because it really seemed like that year. It really was the song that you heard everywhere. Um, but uh, The Night They Drove All Dixie Down, written interestingly interesting, by a Canadian, uh, Robbie Robertson. <laughs> uh, and uh, maybe we should just begin uh, by reminding everybody uh, a, a little bit of how this is the original version by the band. I think the vocals leave on home.
2: We were hungry, just barely alive. By May the 10th, Richmond had fell. It's a time I remember oh so well. The they drove Dixie
1: so, I, I, you know, I mean, what I was saying to Brian and Kara right before we went on the air, one of the things that's so sneaky about music is that you can wind up humming a song like that for the rest of the day without meaning to and even after after subjecting yourself to some critical uh thinking uh, about the contents of it so brian as i say this is in theory for you this is a song that you as a musician have had to make some decisions about
0: for sure and it's 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 a tough decision in part because of its source. Um, yeah, you know, the band is one of like the greatest students and practitioners of American music we have. Um, there's this, uh, I, I especially Vivan Helm. Now that you're bringing him up, I mean, he's he's one of those people where, as a musician, I feel like I learn more about timing from the way he hits a snare drum mm-hmm. <laughs> than I would learn. From you know a year of conservatory, it's really a, like they're astounding musicians. Um, that said, um, there's really has been like a major shift in the music scene that we see inside I mean inside, it's been a conversation like building steam and for 20 years. and in the last five years, it has become quite acute um, and pretty bitter. Uh, but it, it, it definitely also emerges in all kinds of ways. Like the way that the the way the Dixie Chicks have now changed their name to The Chicks. You know, that, that feels like a response to this internal conversation. And a lot of it has to do with a kind of generational shift where younger, mus- younger musicians, um, the questions about whether lyrics still work in 2020, um, given our current political climate, is much is really in the forefront of their minds. And a younger musician, a younger black musician put it to me really well at one point, and not just to me, but to the music scene in general, when he said, uh, you know, do we, is our allegiance to sort of to dead white musicians from the past, or is it to the musicians around us in the present who are much more diverse and have a different set of concerns? And uh, for me, that sort of question was really crystallizing because I realized that my allegiance was very much to people alive around me. And I take seriously the idea that people find certain things pretty offensive. Um, I mean, the the song Dixie itself, as in like the anthem of the Confederacy, is a perfect example because it's a very pretty melody and a very catchy one, and also one that reminds black people of slavery. (laughs) You know, it's it's one it's a thing that like why would you subject an audience to that kind of thing when you know that that's going to be their reaction? And then from that very extreme case. Um, you start getting into the much thornier questions about the function that nostalgia for the old South serves in the greater culture. And that is a, that is a real minefield and one that as I've, you know, in the past 20 years, I've, I've grown increasingly wary of that kind of nostalgia and what sort of like political and social function it's serving because it's, it is it feels inches away from you know a, these kind of uh you know minimization of slavery <laughs> you know which is which is you know an untenable stance for me so you know as as sort of beautiful as this song is you look at the lyrics without the music and it, it gets harder to defend um but Although- there's... but this
1: yeah, I think, when, uh, yeah, I just want to maybe throw it over to Kara for a second. Although I'll, I will say that, yes, one defense of it is that it's not a song. That is being sung by the singer, narratively speaking. In other words, there it is. True. It is the representation of uh, you know uh, of this poor white Southerner, Virgil Kane. Uh, it it's sort of his thoughts, sure. his feelings. So isn't it, necess- it isn't necessarily the person singing the song, whether that's Joan Baez or Levon Helm or uh, any of the other hundreds of people who've done it. Um, yeah, But Kara, yeah. I don't know if that necessarily takes the song off the hook because it's still you're sort of giving voice. You're giving a voice to a guy who maybe didn't own slaves and maybe didn't really have a whole lot of choices about what he did at the moment. But but, you know, so on that on that basis, you could maybe make a case for the song. The problem kind of, I think, is how the song is used and and how it is a kind of lost cause ballad for people in the Deep South who who, you know, haven't seen the light of day.
2: Right, exactly. I think that that's the problem, too, um, that that's the, the way it's used on um, And I think, I mean, I'll say first of all, that when we decided to talk about this, I was like, well, I'm just gonna mostly let Brian take the lead on that because he's such a (laughs) specifically excellent expert on this stuff. And I would rather ask him questions than talk about it. But I will say, I mean, two things. I, first of all, um, have really been struck. I read the article and, um, and I've never thought about this song before. And one thing I've been struck by this year is how little... Um, you know, as much as I think, I think about issues, how little I think about issues in media and songs and arts that I consume, including the song. Like you said, Colin, I'm sure I've like sung along to the song. I have, I know, you know, I know Dixie and I know it refers to the South, um, but I've really never thought about the lyrics. And I, I think that, you know, in contrast to the conversation we were just having about WAP, where maybe we're going a little too far into the analysis. I think this is a really interesting conversation to have. And I don't know if I believe like as a consumer of music and not a musician, um, I don't know. I think it's really interesting what Brian is saying and what musicians think because is it wrong to play the songs or is it just important to have the conversation when you do play
1: them. Well, I think that's a really important thing. Absolutely. Yeah. A couple of quick bits of context. First of all, I just wanted to mention that, um, uh, last night, the Chicks sang the national anthem at the Democratic National Convention and stirring three-part harmonies. Uh, and also, yes, I mean, so that whole idea of singing something and, and then just suddenly becoming aware of what you're singing. I mean, music is so insidious. I keep thinking of the scene in Borat where he gets all these people and Cowboy has to sing a song called Throw the Jew uh. Down the Well, and you know, by the end of the you know thing, the whole room is singing. It's really kind of scary. Uh, and, yes. Uh, but so, Brian, one of the questions is, what do you do? So the musician early James um, in, uh, for a recording, I think celebrating the last Waltz anniversary or something like that, rewrote the song. He's from the Deep South. He has relatives who, who think the song is terrific, and it really does. It is a great ballad of the lost cause. They don't have any particular modern perspective on it. They just, they really like it. So they're mad at him for doing it. But he, you know, and, and it's the rewrites a little bit clunky at times, too. It's that kind of purposeful attempt to correct a, a lyric, which is hard to do. So that's one option. Another option and uh, talk me out of this anyway i feel like if you have the opportunity to contextualize something you can kind of do anything almost i mean not throw the jew down the well and probably not like you know (laughs) uh, but but i mean you know if you have i mean D- disney is going to show the movie song of the south on disney plus one of these days they're just going to figure out a way to have it talked about beforehand and after just like on with the wind you can't uncritically present culture like this but but i think to erase yeah. it to erase it is dangerous too because you're erasing sentiments that either were or are real
0: yeah no i i and i totally agree i i don't think that I, the thing is, is that I think that the accusation that, that one side wants to erase culture is, is, m- is misrepresenting that side. I think that what we're talking about is really all <laughs> the vast majority of people want, you know, which is that you just want to be more thoughtful about your music and you know, question you know, why you're listening to it and what it means now. And for performers, I think it's particularly acute because it's one thing to receive the message and it's another thing to be to like practice and then deliver the message, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's and it, it does you do start to feel a sense of responsibility for what you're doing. You know, it, it takes time to learn a song and it takes time to learn to do it well. And it means you go over the words like again and again, 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 again and again and again and again. And the more you understand what they mean, the, the easier it is to deliver the message. So I think that, uh, you know, from musicians perspective, these questions get get much more personal because you say, you know, why am I performing this song? You know, which is a whole other sort of set of questions than they should exist at all. Uh, right.
1: And I think part of the question in a conversation before you sing the song in a live context is like well, I, yeah, who is Virgil Kane? You know? Is it for is sure. it okay is it okay to think about who who he was in that context?
0: Yeah. Um, and like there like there was a great example. Like last year there was a musician in Middletown named Karen Hogg who did a whole night of murder ballads, but you know, all of like men killing women, but it was sung by women. Mm-hmm. And they did talk about sort of what it meant, you know, that this you know, the, these like pretty shocking things about like violence against women and how it's persisted. And like, are these songs justifying it? Or are they a cautionary tale? Are they a warning? You know, what are they? I mean, these these songs have a lot of power and like still now. And it's a power that I think that we still have to contend with. And I think that that's like, I find that conversation to be very productive. And like like the one we're having right now, I, yeah. I I think it's actually really important to like drag them over the coals every once in a while and say you know do, do this does it still hold up?
1: Kara, hmm. you know what? Whereas we head towards break, Kara, any final thoughts
2: here? No, not not as um, not as astute as as Brian's, yes. and I I don't have any good uh, cultural <laughs> references, but um, yeah. but no, I I totally I totally agree with this, sentiment. I think that. I think that it's a really important point that people are not trying to erase culture. Exactly. Like Brian just said, I think that that's the wrong argument. And that's really important to talk about as we talk about this in so many contexts, you know, from Confederate monuments to, I I think it's, it's a really important point to say, what do we owe to the people who are alive right now? I think that that was, I I really love that you said that Brian.
1: All right. We're going to uh, end the segment here Uh, in the next segment. I, I owe these two people a debt I can never really repay. The, you know, 23 years had passed. The, they either had never seen The Postman or they'd forgotten. And, and I made them watch it. Anyway, here's Richard Cheese's version of WAP as we go out. Right
2: your face, swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I want to ride. I do a Kegel while it's inside. I want you to park that Big Mac truck right in this little garage. From the top, make it drop.
1: We're back. This is The Nose. On the panel today, Kara McDonough, a freelance writer. You can read her blog at Uh Brian Slatter, uniquely qualified to do this show because he is both a musician uh, and a writer of speculative fiction. Uh, and um, so we're going to move from music to um, dystopian scenarios. Uh, and um, how do I even begin this? Well, let me first of all begin by saying that I'm the person who thought of this, and Jonathan McNichol, uh, our producer, was kicking some of their ideas around, and I said, I don't really want to do those. And I said, well, what if we did the postman? I mean, really, you know, it's 1997. Uh, There's been wars uh, in the movie. There's been a plague. Now there's a sociopathic tyrant. uh, And the only hope for the recrudescence uh, of civilization and society uh, is to restore the U.S. Postal Service. I mean, how much more on the nose uh, could things get so uh, at the at the time <laughs> a critical and commercial uh, disaster uh, for Kevin Costner, who was uh, both the star and I believe the director. Um, so uh, let's hear a little, I'm looking I'm looking, at, I'm looking at here at my thing to make sure I don't have to set this up in some way, although I doubt very much that I could. So you're going to hear the sheriff of a dystopian rural community called Pineview uh, and uh, talking to Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner has been an itinerant, sort of actor doing bad Shakespeare uh, and uh, now he is positioning himself as, in fact, the hope of the U.S. Postal Service. Sheriff Briscoe, who the hell are you? I'm a representative of the United States government authorized by Order 417 of the restored Congress to reestablish communication route in Idaho and
0: lower Oregon. What's that mean in English? I'm your postman.
1: Hand me your gun. Understand that tampering with the mail or obstructing the mail is a a federal offense.
2: And furthermore, the the Act requires that you provide all mail carriers with sanctuary and nutrient food.
1: You got three seconds. Get your ass out of here. Uh, you know, Jerry, the contractor. So there you go. Uh, if I tried to explain the scene some more, it wouldn't help. Um, on the other hand, well, I just want to get sort of some basic reactions here. So Kara, get us started here. Um, uh, I know a little bit uh, about how you feel about this movie, but tell everybody else how you feel about this movie.
2: Sure. So I, um, I started this movie, this um, three-hour movie, Uh, with a lot of skepticism, I knew that it had been critically panned pretty much when it came out. Um, and I, I think I started, you know, with a little bit of a negative viewpoint, but I will say that I ended the movie just this morning, the very last 30 minutes quietly weeping as I watched it in my bed. (laughs) And I think that I, I actually, one thing about this movie is if I had seen it when it came out, which I didn't, um, I would have just thought it was you know, overly dramatic and too many slow-mo shots and too many, um, one-liners that were sort of, you know, jaw-droppingly corny. Um, also I thought that Kevin Costner in this movie was just a little bit goofy as the hero, um, which actually worked for me in the end of it. But in these crazy times, you know, um, having the U.S. Postal Service as the hero of a post-apocalyptic world. totally worked for me. And it did uh, convey the hope that I think that they were trying to get across in this movie that like the, the law of the land will be upheld by the postal service. Um, I've always viewed post men and women as just these kind of dutiful, noble, um, you know, employees of the government who, who follow a strict standard code of operations. And so and so, you know, considering what's happening today with, with our postal service, it worked for me. Right. And at the end of the movie, I ended up really, really feeling it. I had a lot of emotions. I didn't think as a movie, it was great. Like I thought the first 45 minutes were very, um, sort of, um, didn't jibe with the rest of the movie. I thought it was very slow at parts. I thought the editing could have been a lot better. Um, but, but yeah, I ended up Liking it, or or at least having it work for me in the summer of 2020.
1: Right, and when you say today, I should say we're doing this uh, live on Friday, uh, earlier in the morning today. Louis DeJoy, the inaptly named Postmaster General of the United States, uh, did appear uh, before members uh, of a Senate panel. Uh, either he did or uh, the more that I watched him, the more I thought it might have been Kevin Spacey, like really heavily made up and doing kind of a combination of his K-Pax character and then the gimp from The Usual Suspects. Uh, but uh, so we're we're right on schedule here. So, yeah, Brian uh, Slattery, <laughs> give us a sense of, of where you were on this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of agreed with the critics from 1997 on like the sort of basic level that it's like not it's not like a very good movie <laughs> you, know, you can say, and we could talk about why that is but it's not as interesting as talking about the things that like seem surprisingly prescient um first of all there's the there's like the maniacal leader's uncanny resemblance to jordan peterson <laughs> like both <laughs> both physically and in the kind of things that he says like like the militia with its like confluence of kind of like we, we, we must like restore our masculinity and, you know, tapping into this whole idea of, you know, men are going to rise again to take over the world and the right wing implications of that. That that was all pretty startling to watch. You know, like somebody had read some pretty some somebody had read some tea leaves back then that were pretty diffuse then that aren't now. You know, and that that was uh, that was startling. And I'm and I'm also really down for the you know, just like Kara said, the general idea that that there's something about the Postal Service that's kind of like the linchpin of a functioning civil society. <laughs> you know, it's it's really important that we be able to move, you know, information and stuff around if we're going to if we're really going to keep functioning. And that there's something kind of noble in that effort. And it actually reminded me of an article I wrote like really early in the shutdown when somebody was going around um, taking pictures of people on their porches and I was following them around all day. And I happened to be interviewing the the photographer uh, about what he was doing. And I looked this up to make sure I got the quote right. But while I was interviewing him, the postman who was going by heard what we were talking about. And he announced in a voice to the entire block In a time of fear, love conquers all. This is what unites us as Americans. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, I. I, I, It's it's
0: actually and I thought it was like dead on. I was like, you are doing your job as a postman, keeping us together in a number of (laughs) ways.
1: Right. I mean, I I collected a lot of stories about uh, mail carriers uh, over the last couple of weeks for a column I was writing. uh, And yeah, people told me incredible stories. And and they're coming out of the news, too, of mail carriers who, even on days where because of these weird reforms that that DeJoy now says he's going to roll back, they were sent out with no mail to deliver. A lot of them would ride their roots anyway, because they see themselves also as these kind of observers and social workers. And they want to just, you know, make sure everybody's okay and stuff like that. It's, It's kind of, an incredible so. thing. And so, yes, that little thing in the middle of the movie, uh it's sort of about two thirds of the way in where all these young people get their minds just and hearts just get kindled by this idea uh, of uh, of reviving the Postal Service and risking life and limb to deliver mail. Um, it It's hard not to be moved by that part. I I, I agree with both of you that the movie is it's sort of a lot of scenes kind of strung together in, in a way that's you know they're vaguely related to one another but one thing doesn't lead to another so it's satisfying <laughs> at yeah. that level uh, no, I should also say that t- to help that people uh, to help people out uh, Jordan Peterson is a uh, another Canadian another troublemaking Canadian uh, Toronto based uh, psychologist with lots of really weird ideas and, he, and the villain here uh, General Bethlehem is played by Will Patton there's a lot of nice little performances by character actors I think Patton's really good uh in this role and and uh there's you know people that you went on to enjoy i would like to single out olivia williams who was so wonderful in rushmore and i always thought she should have had more big roles and i know she's having some health problems right now but she's you know she's not terrific in this because the part's not written right but she occasionally makes it you know makes a terrific scene happen and and that uh in and of itself is is Good. Brian, I just want to stay with you for a second before I go back to Kara. I, the other thing that I was trying to think of watching this, and it's almost impossible to do, is, you know, we kind of now have this idea of this quasi-agrarian post-apocalypse, you know, that, and it's, it's hard to, Do many divergences from it unless you're going to go way in some other direction, like as Costner did in a different movie, Waterworld. But if you're not going to do that, you know, there's a way in which it's all kind of informed by, I guess, maybe the Mad Max movies plus. Uh, you know, Ridley right. Walker the novel Ridley Walker or something, There's just a few of these things. So looking at this, it seemed like a very unimaginative, just sort of another iteration of this very familiar kind of idea about the apocalypse. But it was 1997. I don't know, maybe maybe it wouldn't have seen or shouldn't have seemed quite as boring uh, on that level.
0: I mean, it is it is hard to get away from that because I think that the the move, if you're thinking of you know what happens when society collapses, is that a lot of technology goes with it, you know, and mm-hmm. people need to grow their own food, and you end up with like a bunch of farmers. I think that's right. yeah, that's 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 a difficult thing to get around, you know, like the this whole idea of like how do they get their food if they're not growing it themselves? Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you end up with that. I mean, I would agree with you that. I, I don't fault anyone for ending up there. I think I ended up there twice <laughs> myself, <laughs> but, but it's, it's mostly about, it's the question of like what you do with that idea. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, and how much time do you spend, how much time do you spend ruminating on that idea of like, you know, Oh, we're all farmers now. I guess that's, and I, I think it's also a question of whether you go with the like the mythological idea of a farmer, which I think this movie did a little too much of, versus like the reality of being a subsistence level farmer, which is a you know the basically the worst job on the planet you know that's why it's why nobody wants to do it you know they if they have a chance they go to the city or they get a different job or something like that.
1: You know, Carol. One of the things about this movie that kind of makes it pleasant at times, but also unpleasant at other times. It's pretty clear that no idea was thrown out, at least not for a long time. Not t- <laughs> you know, not until they had the yeah. five-hour. When they had the five-hour cut of the movie, they thought, you know, we got to get rid of some of this stuff, uh, and they did, and then it became incoherent. But um but you know, so there's. There's and so but some of the ideas that were not thrown out, even though they don't necessarily serve anything other than the exact moment they're happening, are kind of enjoyable. I mean, in particular,
0: well, there's, yeah, there was well, there was the idea of Tom Petty that's becoming what I was the mayor. Say. That's well, what I was that was my say. favorite part of the movie. Yeah. Hands so down. enjoyable. Why yeah. for I that, that they, everybody? Totally. I'm I'm gonna ruin the whole scene, but I love that the idea that I thought you know the mayor shows up and it's Tom Petty, and I think hey, it's Tom Petty. And then Kevin Costner's character goes, Weren't you famous? Like they wanted to be Tom Petty. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <Play laughs> and himself. I loved that. I mean, it, it <laughs> seemed totally appropriate to me that Tom Petty would end up being the mayor of a town built on the side of a dam that doesn't allow guns. <laughs> and I wanted to know more about this town. It <laughs> <laughs> should have been I a whole know, spinoff. You know. yeah. I, yeah, I wanted – I was sort of hoping, well, I, we have an hour to go in this movie. Maybe it will all take place in this town that Tom Petty runs.
1: Write a – you know, Brian, just write a 13-episode spinoff. Pitch it to Sci-Fi I Channel, know. you know. Um, you definitely could. Tom Petty's <laughs> not around to help out anymore. Carol, what were you going to say?
2: You could write one just on um, – I thought that Will Patton's character was just so weirdly evil – and you know, like painting portraits of himself in the side. There were so many little details about him that also none of them thrown out. Also, a lion at the beginning roaming around. I don't know if that was ever explained, but that was just completely. I mean, I guess you know, if if zoos are taken away, lions are roaming around. Um, but I I did find that kind of delightful too. I kind of loved it by the end of it. All the things that were they didn't care. None of it was edited out. Um, And I also find, I will say, in these kind of Armageddon type movies, it really delightful to see, you know, this movie was um, made in 1997, but it was supposed to take place in 2013, which is kind of hilarious because it's 2020 now. Um, There was so much like 90s hair in it. um, And there's a band (laughs) in it, like a folk band that was very 90s. um, And I But it's very very
1: Slattery-esque too, you know, there's sort of (laughs) repositionings of... uh, of the red bone song, come and get your love. And
0: uh, you yeah, know, but as just I mean, of, a- of, yes, there's, there's some really nice details in there. I wanted more drums, but other than that, I was down with it, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I guess I have to ask the question. I mean, we did this, we did this for honor and duty and love. Um, should we, should other people, Carol, let me just go back to you for a second. I, I think one thing that, that I would say about the postman, but feel free to disagree with me, but you're not going to because you actually liked it. I think the best of the three of us is we're also kind of at the point where you're running out of stuff to watch. You know, you're really yeah. kind of <laughs> like having to force yourself to like things that maybe you really wouldn't like that much, but you're kind of desperate at this point. And certainly on this basis, on that basis alone, the postman can be revisited. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For running out of things to watch. But I would go beyond that and say, listen, I know this was not like a good movie. Like I, I was just shaking my head in awe at some of the lines. I mean, it's really ridiculous at some points, but I would say everyone should watch it just because it is really rare that a film is so timely and it, that's a weird word to use because it was released a long time ago. But it's really rare that there's a film that sort of makes Postman the hero of our entire country at a time when the U.S. post office is being like torn to shreds by the current administration. I would say watch it for that alone. I mean, it's only going to last for this brief moment in time. You got to watch it now or don't ever watch it.
1: Yes, it's, <laughs> yes, it's like the last this is. Yeah, go ahead, Brian.
0: Yeah, the the earnestness of the movie is really paying off right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) For sure. Right. For sure. You want to have your dreams restored momentarily. uh, Watch The Postman (laughs) (laughs) if you have a bad time. It is three hours long. I mean, don't blame us. We warned you. Uh, All right. We'll take a break. We're going to make some recommendations on the other side of this break. All right, uh, we are back. I want to say thank you to Cat Pastor. She's in the studio, making it possible for the rest of us to do what we do remotely. Uh, also want to thank uh, Jonathan McPants uh, for producing this episode and going along with my postman concept. Uh, and we're going to be back on Monday with our usual Monday scramble. We always, uh, on Mondays these days, try to give you the latest in the medical science, uh, of the COVID 19 pandemic. We'll do that actually. Uh, Angela Rasmussen, uh, a New York based researcher, uh, a guest actually we've been courting and trying to get for a really long time, is going to join us and uh, give us uh, her view of things. All right, time to make some recommendations. Kara uh, McDonough, why don't you go first?
2: Sure. So I've been, I always listen to a lot of podcasts, but I've been listening to even more than usual probably as I walk m- miles through this pandemic summer. Um, and one of the ones I've been, I just finished is called rabbit hole. Um, I don't know if either of you guys have heard of it, but it's a New York, it's two New York times tech reporters that did uh, stories about how people are, um, affected by the internet, um, how they're radicalized, um, either to the right or to the left. Um, and it's just, uh, I don't know. I remember how many of there are, but it's a limited series podcast and they're pretty short episodes. Um, and I just found it totally fascinating. I'm not a big consumer of the internet. I never watch YouTube, but I find people who do very interesting and the people who are made stars by it very interesting. And it just does a great job of explaining how a normal, maybe unpolitically affiliated person might you know, become like a huge follower of right-wing politics or left-wing politics just by watching um, pe- popular people on, on YouTube. Um, and it ends by explaining the history of QAnon, which I think especially right now um, as Trump has talked about them recently is really interesting and important. I think it's really important to know um, how that happens. So that's
0: my recommendation for this week.
1: All right, Karen McDonough, thank you so much. And Brian Slattery, what have you got
0: for us? Um, part of the aesthetic that showed up in the video for uh, WAP <laughs> um reminded me a lot of a of a i believe philadelphia-based hip-hop artist i really like named Tierra whack who uses it's t-i-e-r-r-a then whack w-h-a-c-k um who uses the same kind of like crazy candy colored palettes to make these like kind of really unsettling concept videos <laughs> that, uh, that in, you know, involve both music and visuals in a, in a way that I find totally compelling. And she, they, they, take a, they apparently take a long time to make because she's been doing them for a few years and she has a short but really kind of deep body of work at this point. Um, that it's uh, at turns hilarious and then also kind of horrifying and worth checking out, especially when you have nothing else to watch these days.
1: All right. Uh, you just made Sam Haddelman uh, really happy if he's listening. Uh, uh, Sam occasionally <laughs> I know his panelists, but a big fan of Tiara Wack and I think uh, tried to get one of her songs, did get one of her songs on to our song in the summer show a couple of years hey, ago. So there you okay. go. So um, I'm going to just uh, just in a general way um, say that although uh, – Kevin Costner is somebody that we can kind of laugh at and make fun of. Uh, I wouldn't dismiss his body of work. He's actually kind of turned into an interesting actor over the years and now, of course, does kind of a little bit more textured supporting roles like the one he did in in Hidden Figures. He's also gone from being a Republican to being a Pete Buttigieg supporter. But, you know, if you've never watched much Kevin Costner, you really kind of have to start with Dances with Wolves and Bull Durham. I think those are kind of the two where he, you know, he really nails uh, the things that he's trying to do. And Dances with Wolves is very much a very comprehensive project. He directed it to. So um, and then there's like a little obscure one called The Company Men, which I don't know how it would land right now because it's sort of about a white a bunch of white guys, older white guys, losing their jobs. But um, but uh, also, as I recall it anyway, a pretty nice performance. Anyway, there's there's lots. You should have your own little Kevin Costner film festival uh, and and do that. The other thing I want to quickly <laughs> endorse is President Obama's uh, annual summer playlist, which is up on Twitter right now. You just go to his Twitter account. I think it came out on the 17th. Uh, He is a musically voracious guy. So there's everything from Billie Holiday to the very latest in hip hop. I think the list is somewhat daughter influenced in that way. Uh, But even so, um, to to have an ex-president who who consumes music uh, at the level and nuance that this uh, this list, which comes out every year and always fascinates me. There's some old stuff that's really great too, but some new stuff that uh, I certainly have made a point of checking out. If you're looking for some stuff to listen to, let Barack Obama tell you what to listen to. Uh so anyway thanks very much to Brian Slattery uh, to Kara McDonough uh, to Jonathan McPants and to Cat Pastor thanks to you for listening too we're coming back again on Monday to do some more of this craziness New Britain,
2: Burning I already said that one Avon Farmington yeah 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 yeah, yeah